A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by our very own consulting producer and podcaster, Emily Gagne, and Red Central's Mary Beth McAndrews. Based on a true story, is there a title card or a selling point that stretches the truth more than those five little words? From The Exorcist to The Conjuring, marketers and filmmakers have used real-life events as launch-off points to scare the bejesus out of moviegoers with the idea that this could happen to them. Now, today, we're going to look at two supernatural movies intertwined with real-life tragedies. But before we do, now, Mary Beth, you're someone who has seen more horror movies than most people. It seems weird to say. Uh, What are some of the more fascinating true stories movies have been based on? Now, I know there's some cases that Hollywood just loves there are tons of movies of, like uh, Annalise Michelle is a big one. Oh, yeah. And I think my, so this is a really weird one that's my favorite because it's like not technically based on one specific story, but The Strangers is my, is one of my favorites because you put based on a true story in front of anything and like, I'll get scared a little bit. You know, there is that like rooting a horror film in supposedly true events is a really good way to get people like really off the, off the beginning terrified. That's why I found footage works so well, like the Blair Witch Project, but the strangers is like, cause it's based on actual events. It's really just inspired by director Brian Bertino, like hearing about weirdos knocking on doors. And he experienced like a ding dong day situation when he was younger. And that kind of was where the story was born, but that's my favorite. It's like kind of a, cheating one but like that one I love because so many people were like this actually happened when it came out and so that that one for sure and I'm not a big possession movie person like the I just I think that all of these stories about possession like Annalise Michelle and everything it's just like there's so much weird icky like patriarchal weird things going on with like the catholic church and how women's bodies are treated by the church that it's always just kind of squeaky because it's a lot of a movie just about um those things happening but then also Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another one that is again yes based on a again we love a good based on a true story (laughs) in a horror movie because it you know but then that's like you know that's ed it's kind of inspired by ed gein um who was a serial killer in wisconsin Mm -hmm. who didn't i hate that i have to say this but he wasn't technically like fully a serial killer because he really only defiled dead bodies he killed two people but he exhumed other bodies so, and like decorated his house with body parts, um, which is beyond repulsive. Like, have you heard about the nipple belt he made out of like people's nipples? Like we all know about the nipple belt, but yep. <laughs> if, if you know anything, you know about the nipple belt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you gotta know about the nipple belt. Um, and sorry, I just didn't think I was going to start laughing about nipple belts today. And I love that um, for all of us. <laughs> I mean, we should also say that this is like the, the Ed Gein is also the fundamentals for Buffalo yeah. Bill with Sansa Lambs. Like anytime you're seeing someone skin someone else. Very problematic-ish a little bit in terms of how Ed Gein's situation, which is abhorrent, is then like translated into these really weird stories about gender. But again, that's another discussion for another podcast but those are some of my favorites because i just i think again they're stretching the truth but they're doing it in a way that really adds to your experience especially if you don't know anything about it or it's your first time watching it like when i saw the strangers in theaters when i was in high school i believe i saw that and i was like are you joking these things happen this is real and then i couldn't sleep and like somehow that added to it just made me feel like this could happen to me and that is what is so terrifying about those kinds of movies where it's based on like actual people being terrible people because that just gets under my skin for the longest time slashers were something i just couldn't do because i'm like oh that could actually happen like i was all about the supernatural horror stories but like anything that was slasher based i'm like anyone can go buy one of those ghost face masks and just go after me anytime like i'm just not into that very concept right um obviously they got more fantastical as those movies went along but the first screen well and that's based on a serial killer too that's based on the gainesville ripper of course who was this is this guy danny rowling who killed a bunch of college students in florida and like, yeah, so it's, I mean, again, another loose thing. And I don't think they really exploit that really like in Scream, but Kevin Williamson was inspired by a serial killer for for Scream, for the first one, at least. That's so interesting. And then I guess, and I don't know this because I'm not a marketing person. I don't know, 
obviously inspiration strikes how inspiration mm-hmm. strikes, right? Like everything comes from something and you're going to be like, oh, well, that scares the crap out of me. I got ding dong ditched and now I'm going to create one of the most terrifying horror movies of all time. Like from something innocent to something terrifying that inspires us. But then I'm not entirely sure when the marketing department comes in and the legal department comes in and says we can then make this inspired on a true story like when when does that element come in is it just throughout discussions or does it get tacked on later i think it just depends i think like with scream i think it's so so far away from that like and again there's like the inspired by and i okay i think sometimes the inspired by stuff is also used on smaller movies that maybe aren't as good to get because that's a huge marketing ploy if people say it's inspired by a true story they are a little bit more likely i think to go see it so if you take a movie that maybe you're worried about and has like some root in reality and they put that on there, I feel like that is where that comes from a lot of the time. Like Scream didn't need that. And Scream was so far like no. so far away inspired. But I think it is like the marketing department deciding, like, what's the angle? Like, what is the angle we're gonna play up here to really get people to see it? Like that was the case with Wolf Creek, that Australian slasher from the early two yeah. thousands. Like, that was a big deal. We have a whole episode about that. You can go back and listen to that one because that that whole story is absolutely it, not it, ours. I shouldn't have looked into it. And I did. Um, I, I, I have learned from the, <laughs> yeah. that the Australian Outback is a great place to be a serial killer because no one goes looking for you. <laughs> you just disappear. Yeah, yeah you're but gone. But I mean, like, and the, I actually, that movie actually is terrifying. Mm-hmm. But again, like, that's the kind of, like, indie movie that I think got more attention because it had the base on a true story, like, on the time, like, everywhere. So I think it really is like just kind of the marketing decides when. There's some things too, like for example, uh, the Conjuring series where they've decided to take two real life people who were nightmare humans and Lorraine Warren and then turn them into heroes. (laughs) At which point, like, I'm not entirely sure why you decided to do that because they are not good human beings and it's on record. They're They're God's strongest soldiers. We have to support God's strongest soldiers (laughs) fighting against the devil for us. And it's so weird. And I love the fictional Warrens, but I I have to pretend they're not real because the real people are gross which you talked about (laughs) beautiful well let's get into our first film today dealing with some people that you're gonna have some opinions on so our first movie today the mothman prophecies is one i'm excited to talk about with you guys because i am truly baffled by exactly what the mothman is is it a cryptid part angel part alien Well, whatever it is, it seems to have simultaneously terrified and or warned a whole community about an incoming tragedy in the mid-60s. Now, the story of Mothman and the Silver Bridge Collapse is laid out in the nonfiction book of the same name written by John Keel, which Mary Beth literally has sitting on her desk right now. She's holding it up for the camera just so you can see it here on Zoom. A journalist and paranormal researcher known for being a wee bit of a prankster, (laughs) something that always meshes well with journalism. Now, his motto was, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And the Mothman prophecies, for whatever truth it has, is one hell of a story. Mary Beth, let's get into the story of the Mothman, Mothmen in general, as well as the story of this movie. So let's start with the story of this movie and then kind of extrapolate from there. Here we go. Okay, so the Mothman prophecies from 2002, directed by Mark Pellington. It follows a journalist named John Klein not John Keel, whose wife gets into this terrible car accident. And right before they get get into this car accident, they see this like vision. Mm -hmm. There's like red eyes and something. So after the death of his wife, he basically finds his way in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. One, he drives there, somehow ends up in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and becomes embroiled with the story of the Mothman and how Mothman is potentially predicting a horrible disaster to come upon the town. And it is him, He this movie starring also Laura Linney as a cop, follows his kind of research and trying to understand if Mothman is real and if this figure Indra Cold that also calls him quite frequently is real. So it's very loosely based on the book. It's not like, it's very, it takes a lot of liberties, but it is loosely based on John Keel's book where he documents the occurrences of the Mothman in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Now, let's talk about the the book and the documenting of uh-huh. the occurrences of Mothman. Now, he's known as the West Virginia Mothman, but he's shown up in multiple other places in the world. Is that correct? Theoretically? Yeah, so theoretically, yes. He was first seen 
first reportedly seen in the 60s in West Virginia, and he is known for, like, kind of market, like, arriving where tragedies are going to strike. And he has, like, as most recently been seen in Chicago, near an airport, apparently. Yeah, so when I lived in Chicago, actually, I was like, thank God he's here. Um, But, yeah, he's he's kind of like a harbinger of doom a little bit. No one really knew about him until the (laughs) 60s, and then he kind of started spreading out. But, yeah, the 60s is when he was first kind of spotted and reported. Is there a connection between Batman and the Mothman in terms of, like, the terminology of Mothman? Because I was thinking about how, like, in the 60s was when Batman debuted, right? Like... The answer is yes. Uh, The sightings first started happening when 60s Batman was a thing, and that's why he's called Mothman instead of the Batman, even though he does resemble more of a bat than a moth. It's actually kind of fun to go and look at some of the pictures, especially the recent ones, of this creature. Um, And there's one recently, if you Google uh, recent Mothman photos that was taken in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where this story takes place. It's a neat looking creature with like these thin legs behind and these big wings and this head that looks human. But what it actually is apparently is a bird that has a magnificent name called a shite poke. And they have this really wild silhouette where like they're very top heavy and all the bird element is at the top. And then they have these long skinny legs at the back that create this cool silhouette. But it's really neat that even now people are taking pictures of this and this mythology is kind of continuing on. But let's get into how the book sort of creates the mythology. So John Keel basically like set into motion the popularity of what of Mothman and like the published what this was, but not it wasn't just Mothman. So I think this is something that people like miss, not miss, but Mothman slash what happened in Point Pleasant is seen as like this incredibly weird cosmic event that like makes no real sense like in true cosmic horror fashion so mothman is like the tidy little cute package that people have like loved as myself but what really this book documents is also the and is the creation of the phrase men in black which we obviously hear interesting with men in black as the movie and that actually is inspired by this so men in black are men in black but who (laughs) appear where the mothman appears and they are men in black suits but they don't and they seem human but they don't look fully like they fit in the human suit that they're wearing and there's multiple reports of this that john keel writes about um about people being after they see mothman being visited by these figures who are like trying to get information out of them or just like being very strange but they look they say they're part of like the fbi or the cia and they kind of look like that but there's something off about them And this is where Indrid Cold comes in, which is in the movie. Indrid Cold is, like, said to be, like, one of the lead men in Black. And he is kind of, like, him and Mothman are, like, intertwined. And there's a lot of theories, like, is Mothman, like, a sign of these people? Like, what is, like, the connection? And there isn't really an answer because, one, is it even real? Like, whatever. But, like, there's this big theory that they're interdimensional beings who, like, have all-seeing access to things and come here to warn humans and mothman is like their symbolic carbinger and then the the dudes are there to kind of clean up after the fact so if you've ever heard the term like high strangeness that is kind of related to this and high strangeness is basically like things that don't really make sense but you have a really hard time explaining why they don't make sense like if you listen to last podcast on the left they talk about this a lot and if you've ever watched the show hellier um, which is on Amazon, mm-hmm. they talk about high strangeness a lot. And actually, season two talks about Indrid Cold, which is hilarious. So if you want to learn more about this, watch that show. Hellier's the one about them looking for goblins, right? Yeah, they're they're like trying- in like a tiny town looking for goblins. <laughs> yes, they are looking for Kentucky <laughs> goblins, and then it, it unfolds okay. this whole thing. And it's 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 real. They it's, It is filmed as a documentary series. And so, yes. But yes, so... Basically, Keel in this book is just documenting this beginning of high strangeness. What is this? And trying to make sense of, like, what is going on in this town and why there are these weird figures coming to this town. And, like, why him? Why was he chosen? Because he was said to be chosen. And they play up that in the movie of him, like, randomly driving to Point Pleasant and ending up there. And in the movie, we'll talk about, like, they've obviously played up a lot of these aspects. It's not nearly as cinematic. There's a lot of just John Keel driving back and forth from where he lives to Point Pleasant and like reading newspapers and talking to old women who smoke cigarettes and like, <laughs> like don't know who he is. 
and it's a it's a much longer journey to figure all this stuff out. But yeah, that's my long-winded explanation of like the Mothman lore. It doesn't really explain what exactly it is and what his intentions are, but that's kind of the fun of the mystery is you're like, is he there to mess people up? Mm. Is he... All the only connection is he seems to appear in certain places where like their bad things are about to happen, but they're he doesn't like really hurt people. He intentionally, like people the, get hurt. Intentionally, but. yeah. Like people get hurt. Like, you know, the claims of him like flying at cars. People get um in the in the movie, these people, and I actually learned about this after watching this movie and reading this book that people's eyes were like red and had they had conjunctivitis. And apparently that's a thing when you get abducted by aliens because the light is so bright. And it's like UV what? or something, and it fucks <laughs> up your eyes because his eyes are so red. There's like that's what people thought he could be alien in origin because of all of these like weird things that happen to abductees slash people who see UFOs and who see Mothman and these weird physical symptoms they have. I think that's one of the, what's so fun about Mothman and him being, if you will, he's one of the lesser cryptids. You would say, right? Like he's no Sasquatch. He's not getting right. like right. a million movies right. made out of him. Don't. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. And I don't mean that. I think just because of the popularity he's gotten, but that's what yeah. I mean. like, I think, yeah, I'm just, I'm laughing at that. Cause like everyone knows who Mothman is, but I don't think a lot of people know, like the real, the real Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> but like the story about it, like they like the idea of, and there's just not as many movies. He's not as prevalent in pop culture. Oh my culture, God. The like movies they've tried to make right? about him are terrible. No one knows how to do it. Cause it's such a weird thing. Like Mothman makes no sense. Like, again, like it's just like the weirdest, like he's like a weird dude who just like hangs out on top of nuclear reactors and is like, Hey, something bad might be happening. And then it's like, he's not a bad guy. He's not a good guy. He's just like this like chaotic neutral winged being that just like chills and is just like, I don't know how you make a movie out of that. They they do him. do the swooping shots in this movie, which I was like, there's the Mothman. He's come. He's looming. I know. <laughs> I know. Like, he's here. <laughs> Mothman I view. It's actually funny because I actually think this movie is probably the closest you will get to something that is able to actually make sense of exactly what the yeah. mystery behind it um the fact that they're they're utilizing an actual incident so the the silver bridge did actually uh collapse um not as many people died actually more people died in real life than did in the movie i think 78 people died and 63 died here of course there has to be a big dramatic rescue where laura linney is one of the people who falls in and uh richard gear comes in and comes to his, her rescue making it a very hollywoody sort of movie um this is a movie that had been bouncing around in development since obviously the book was written in the early 70s the incident ha- incidents happened in the mid 60s i feel like this is a movie that really should have been made in like the early mid 70s there is like a, a hollywood gloss that is happening that i think doesn't work quite as well as like a 70s grit would work for this story of like you know hard-bitten journalist loses his wife trying to getting weird phone calls trying to figure out mysteries terrible things are happening to people he's played by Elliot Gould you know like that's that's kind of how I have this in my how in my head about how this is real would be really like snarky and fun and, and gritty and cool I like that idea I I also just wonder why when they made this movie why they didn't set it in the 60s like they were like we're making it modern day like I yeah <sighs> all budgets that's why period pieces are very expensive yeah costumes and stuff I guess but like but think about how much more spooky it could be like like I I don't know why but Maybe it's like the based on a true story thing, but like I was thinking about Zodiac and like how effective that movie is. And like imagine like the Zodiac treatment, but for Mothman, I when, feel like it could be really cool. I agree. I think that would be so cool. And I think they like again, they take the story that Keel writes, which again, like he's writing like a history book. Like this is not like a fictional page. Well, however you fall, this is not like a page turner that's like exciting. It's a lot of him talking about history and it's it's not like this big page turner and i think they tried to make it that by adding like this romance stuff and the cop and I, it's like i think it takes away though a little bit from like the the full-on mystery i think we're so again with hollywood you want to be so invested in these characters and like what they're going through but i think they just tried too hard to make john keel not like a weirdo cryptozoologist who probably smoked too many cigarettes and like drank a lot of liquor and like was a kind of a like a weirdo and not like a hot popular journalist i think i would have loved to see something where like a weirdo like a Zodiac kind of thing, like a Jake Gyllenhaal kind of like nerdy weirdo rather than like a hot boy. I think because this movie, 
we're in that like era of like still wanting to do like big star power and like well, how can we make this movie more interesting and like get more people to watch it and have this whole like core like emotional story at center when it's really just about like the fuck is that thing and yeah. Well, when you read um, contemporary reviews yeah. of this, one of the biggest criticisms that's levied at it is that it is a uh, ultra long X Files episode. And so by 2002, the X Files, like the charm of that, like investigation of the supernatural thing, had already very much played itself out. The X Files had basically played itself out, especially in the fact that it never really came together and never really made any sense. And I think people were just sort of burnt on it. And this, I, I, I understand and I see that criticism. I genuinely think they're trying to do more with it than that but I think especially because of the time this was made that is exactly the kind of mold it falls into is like is it real is it not is he crazy Indrid Cole you know like it is it falls into that but I do think for what they are trying to do I think it is competently made and I think it falls into more than competent I think there's some really funky cool elements like I love the Indrid Cole voice I think that's really neat um this the the swoopy shots are, you know, something else right now. But I do think there is... <laughs> Emily, I love your little swoopy dance. It's great. But I do think they do some really good suspense stuff. Is like Laura Linney has that great line where she's like... Seeing a UFO is one thing. What do you do when someone comes into your office and tells you they saw this in the backyard? Like, that's genuinely spooky. What about chapstick? Isn't that spooky, too? <laughs> Chapstick's pretty great. <laughs> that part. What's my... I remember that. And I feel like that's something that people quote. Like, Mayor Beth, is there like a Mothman prophecies? Like, like, are people like fans of this yeah. movie? Like, like, even though it's not perfect, like outside of the Mothman, are they just like fans of this movie? I don't think because I'm not really a big fan of this movie, <laughs> but I appreciate I appreciate it. I just but like not really. I think a lot of people that I've, I've talked about this in another podcast before, which is hilarious, but it's like people appreciate it, but it's like, there's not a lot of Mothman in it. And I know that's not the point, but it's like, when you call me the Mothman prophecies and you only show me like a couple red eyes and like some sketches on some paper, it's just like. But I also think that's why it's called the Mothman prophecies and not the Mothman, right? Because yeah. it's about the prophecies the Mothman has and not the actual Mothman itself. I'm getting technical. I think, yeah, <laughs> but also like, I don't know, like if you're going to make a Mothman movie, you got to commit and at least have one shot of like, a, and again, I get budget. But I've seen some really tiny indie movies make some monsters before. And I, I think I wish they had played up more of the horror aspect. And again, I think this was coming from it. This is like the era of like post 9-11 horror was like turning into torture porn. And there were a lot of like, I, I, look, I'm an, I'm an early 2000s apologist for horror films in that era. But like there was a very specific kind of horror movie that was happening. And I think they they didn't lean into like this more cosmic horror route because i want to see a good cosmic horror movie about mothman because i think mothman is like mothman slash men in black slash injured cold are like core cosmic horror to me like hard to like unable to really fully grasp and understand what it is but it exists and it's that's hard to make on film and i think they tried to especially like i think there's a scene where like will Patton's character is like it's like a flashback or something with his character and like with the voice. I think the voice is really scary. And I think they play with that. Well, I just don't think they do it enough, but I think they had stuff, but again, studio systems in the, the early two thousands, what this was like, I can only imagine they're like, you know, to make it a very particular way, not lean too far into the horror aspect of it. Just a little bit. Well, it's also keeping that PG PG 13 rating, right? Like how, how are we going to get the moms in the audience for Richard Gere? Cause when you cast Richard Gere, you're getting a very specific, you know, audience for that. And then of course, Will and Grace, you've got Deborah Messenger, right? Like it's a, and Laura Linney, like it's a very interesting it's cast a, for yeah. that, the demographic they'd be trying to attract. Monster in a PG 13 movie. Like I'm just talking about like, the Mothman doesn't ripping people apart. This isn't like gore, but you can still have a good monster in a PG 13 movie in a PG 13 horror. I know they can. I, and again, studios probably, I don't know, but I just also think this is such a weird choice for Richard Gere. Like, like his movie before this is runaway bride. And then he like, oh, like Mothman <laughs> prophecies. Yeah. And this year is a big year for him. Like it's like Mothman prophecies, January, May, unfaithful which is wow. like a movie that we th we really think of him in and then chicago is december so he's having a very eclectic year that starts with mothman prophecies like 
I know he started his career doing some darker stuff, but like by this time he had a different reputation that like, I just, I almost don't understand why he took this part. Well, I know Laura Linney took it because she wanted to work with Richard Gere again because the last time they got to work together was Primal Fear and that went extremely well. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So she was like, yeah, I'll do it. I was researching and researching and I couldn't find anything. Like, he didn't do a lot of press for this movie. Like, it it really seems like this just might have been something, like it might have been a favor or like he owed a studio contract or something like this. There's a Washington Post article that is just vicious and it seems like like a, a, a review and it seems like the person has like a personal vendetta against Richard Gere because he says watching the Mothman prophecies is like getting mugged in an alley by an especially thuggish crew of method actors whack they blast you with inner torment how they drill you with anguish are they pound you with desolation then there's that final sweeping roundhouse of screaming narcissistic self-pity and here's the funny part all this thes- and violence emanates from one single source, Richard Gere. Did his wife leave him for Richard Gere or something like that? Like, damn, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm like, that is one of the most vicious things I think, I think I've read. And number two, it doesn't fit with, I think, what he's doing in this movie. And also it doesn't fit with any other review because every other, every other review's criticism of this is like Richard Gere takes no action in this movie. He's just reacting. Yeah, Method, what is Method about what he's doing? Like, he didn't turn into a The Mothman, or he didn't, like, I I wish. I wish, honestly. Body horror where someone becomes The Mothman, even, I don't know how that would work, but I'd watch that. Mary Beth, you have and, to write that. I'm I'm <laughs> buying a ticket right now. And you're there. Like, I get it. He's very sad. His wife has died. There's a lot of that. But, like, I don't see that. If anything, I think this movie's too understated. Like, it's he, too understated to be camp either. Yeah. Like, I feel like they're not doing enough emotionally. Like, you're saying, like, if they were, like, really hamming it up, it could be campy. But they don't even go that far to make it mm-hmm. that way, which is a bummer. And you're just like, wait, they really thought this was going to be, like, an actual serious release they do a good job of kind of trying to make this coherent because the biggest thing i've always found about john keel's work and john keel was a screenwriter like he mm-hmm. wrote for lost in space he wrote for guest smart uh he wrote the fickle finger of fate which is one of my favorite titles Incredible. of something which is like a spy spoof no- novel it's funny because like he was simultaneously a debunker and a like inventor of concepts like he really sits for me almost in a like l ron hubbardian sort of thing where like they're writing fictional stuff and they don't necessarily realize they're doing damage and what they've done is sort of becoming larger than life. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard knew exactly what he was doing. He's a nightmare human. But um, but but like th- their work kind of becomes bigger than they are and takes on this, the life of its own. I think Keel does that. And the biggest thing that's attributed to him is that he started out with J.L. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée, who are names we've heard of before associated with Close Encounters of the Third Kind as being like two of the biggest UFO and most decorated UFO researchers that are out there, respected UFO researchers. Um, He started out with them kind of trying to, like, validate UFO existence. And then he kind of came up with the idea in the late 60s that UFOs, as we've been kind of conceptualizing, don't exist. So he created the idea of the ultra-terrestrial, which is that things aren't from space, they are from other dimensions. And that's sort of where, and that's the eldritch horror that, Mary Beth, you were talking about, is that like the things on the outskirts of us trying to push their way in, that's really hard to film. It's why even up till now, like we hadn't, we really didn't have a lot of successful Lovecraft movies or Lovecraft um, conceptualism, uh, why we now have, I mean, why in podcast is such a big, a big thing now. Everyone's doing Lovecraft stuff on podcast because you don't have to see it. You just have to hear it, right? I don't know if this is unfilmable, but I think the angles, as you were discussing them, Mary Beth, are possibly not the, are the angles they, has, they should have been going for. So if, if you were to make this, what is the angle you would really want people to take away from this? I think if I was to make a Mothman movie, it would be very much to play up the idea of incomprehensibility and playing with that in a more experimental way than we see in like most Hollywood films. I think we've seen a lot of like films recently that can handle cosmic horror and they're like on a lower budget and there's ways to play, I think even more with audio and with more visual trickery and things that you can do to really play up the unknowableness of this and really play into the mysteriousness of it. And I would love to see a movie that plays with that aspect, uh, like really looks into the cosmic horror of this. And again, like seeing cosmic horror outside of like a uh, Lovecraft's lens and looking at cosmic horror as like 
other entities that are like in our like cultural zeitgeist and what that means to like have a creature like this as part of our cultural zeitgeist. I think that's really, I think there's something you can really interesting you can play with in terms of like unknowingness and not knowing the future, the past, the present and playing with the ability to experience all of those things at the same time. And why this creature is like so hard to pinpoint and why also it's hard because it's hard to like remove Mothman from the men in black. And I think that's where it gets confusing with the Mothman prophecies movie. And I, and I do appreciate that they tried to really dig into that, but it's hard to like explain all of those concepts. Cause they're, they're barely concepts. Like John Kilmer about this in the seventies and was like, I think this is what happened. And then people are like, yeah, I've experienced that. But again, there's like, it's so bizarre. You can't really, you have to put so much of your own interpretation on it and like really know or like be invested in not not knowing everything and being comfortable with playing with that on knowledge, I think. And even explaining that concept of high strangeness is just you just know something's wrong. Like yeah, yeah it's, like, it. and it's, like, it's described as a gut feeling. Like, and you yeah. can't even like explain a gut feeling. It's just something you know is like it feels it's like uncanny, but even worse. Like we all know the uncanny valley, but it's like uncanny, but to a higher like to an even more extreme. I think that is the perfect place for us to leave this high strangeness movie and move on to our next movie, which, due to unforeseen horrible circumstances, is utterly bizarre. It's Queen of the Damned, and that's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points <laughs> of film history that uh, that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. Interview with the Vampire took a long time to get to the big screen. From its initial optioning in 1976, when Travolta was attached as Lestat, to the 80s, when Lewis was made into a cross-dressing woman in a draft by Anne Rice herself in an effort to cast Cher and get the damn thing made. Still no good. When it was finally released in 1994, it stirred up a lot more controversy, from the casting of Tom Cruise as the Vampire Lestat, to the overt homoeroticism, and of course, the horrible Oscar snub for Kirsten Dunst's performance. But when it was released, man, did it make big bank. So what happened to that, that this opulent, adult-oriented, star-studded first installment of the series was followed up by an infamous bomb, Queen of the Damned, almost a decade later? Let's find out. Emily Gagne, let's try to summarize the plot on this one. When you're ready. I'm going to do a general take on this okay. because there's a lot... There's a lot going on in this movie, <laughs> and I don't fully understand a lot of it, but I do understand this, which is the vampire known as Lestat, who we met in an in interview with the vampire, he's awoken from his ancient slumber by music, new metal music, <laughs> and he is so excited by this music that he he decides he's going to join the band, and not only is he going to join the band, he is going to out himself as a vampire publicly and promote this show at Death Valley. Of course, it's Death Valley. And so in the process of him doing that, he attracts the attention of a paranormal researcher who is that girl from Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> um, and uh, she becomes kind of even more obsessed with Lestat and the, the lore of Lestat and kind of becomes attracted to him. But in the process of all this music being released, 
another vampire is unleashed, Akasha, and she is the queen of the damned. And her unleashing, it creates a whole bunch of ancient vampire drama that I cannot spell out for you, but there's a huge (laughs) climax with a bunch of ancient vampires coming together and a new queen of the damned is named. Uh, It's crazy. It's just crazy. I love Interview with the Vampire, but I feel very mild about Queen of the Damned. So how do you guys feel about this movie? Like, when was the first time that you saw this movie and were you fans of the OG uh, film? Okay, so I've seen, I saw a lot of, like, parts of Queen of the Damned. It was on, like, TNT or, like, I can't remember what channel it was on, but there was a lot, it was on TV a lot when I was a kid. So I had never seen the full thing until actually relatively recently. So I just, like, would watch parts of it and, like, kind of absorbed what was going on. It was, like, again, one of those movies you watch when it was on, but you didn't really, like, understand it. But I thought I loved vampires and there was a sex scene in a bathtub and there was new metal. So, like, my young brain was like, I don't know what's going on, but, like, hell yeah. And... I watched it recently and like, yes, it's a hot mess, but I really love how much of a hot mess it is. I I do. I am an apologist for this trash fire of a movie. Like, yeah, we'll talk about it, but I, I, I have a lot of fun with this. This is a movie that like, I know is not great, but just something about like how ridiculous it is. And just like the music is everything about it is just like, how does this exist? And that is why I love it. And like Aaliyah is Akasha, which is just like the most incredible casting of all time. We need an yes. we actually needed a movie about her and not like about a white guy trying to like get success and then she just happens to come in at the end. But she gets to set a whole bar full of vampires on fire. That's fun. That's incredible. I just wanted a whole movie of that. You know what I yeah. like? But that's just me. But like, I don't know. This movie I know is like very mid, but I just ha- it has a soft spot. I have a soft spot for this movie in my heart. I, it's yeah. It's very much like what I loved as a teenager. Like this was the kind of stuff that was like very me. And there's an article coming out on Dread Central that's shameless plug, written not by me, but one of our incredible writers, Cressa Beer, about like her growing up with this movie. And it's just very funny to see like what the weird kids that gravitated towards the vampires and goth shit and how this movie was like very much our our thing. So yeah, like baby yeah. goth me. It is created <laughs> for that. I saw this movie when I was 17 in the theaters, actually. So Hell yeah. Okay, cool. I, saw, I am an OG watcher of this because I had a friend that was very into all things Anne Rice. She owned lace gloves. Like, this is the level we're talking yeah. about here. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, being the good friend I am, and also who is just so uh, open to any opportunity because I'm hoping it will either be the best thing that happened to me or the worst thing that happens to me, and I have a story. Uh, I never want a mediocre experience. I just remember kind of leaning over to her and being like, so who's that? What's happening now? Who's that? Wait, who who is that? What and she probably didn't even know because it's not even like actually based on any. Like she probably was like, I don't mm-hmm. actually know who any of these people are. Like I get. <laughs> she was very gothy Kendall already, so like she did not. But I, I've never seen her look more dour than watching this film. Oh. I don't think. I don't think <laughs> this was the film that she thought it was going to be either. And I think there was a lot of hype and excitement and anticipation because again, the first movie is like. It's not good either. It is like a very wacky hey. thing. But there is there is money in that movie. Like that movie is goofy. Like we'll just say I'm not saying it's not yeah. not good. I'm just saying Interview with the Vampire is goofy. <laughs> it's the teeth and the accent. What's goofy about the, it's it's goofy. This movie takes like the goofiness to a whole other level. Like as I was watching it, I was like, this is so deeply goofy in a way that you can only unintentionally be goofy. That's why it's a like, camp masterpiece. No, I'm not kidding. That's why this scene <laughs> at the dam is a camp masterpiece. Because I wasn't trying to be camp. And Citizen Sontag's notes on camp, the best kind of like camp doesn't know what it's doing. And that's why this movie rules, because if they thought it was serious and it's actually really campy and it's like, oh, no, but I love it because it is a campy, weird, new metal goth 
like yeah. love letter. It's like it's a it's like, it's like a fucking two hour long music video. Is like really it, what it, it is. is. Well, well, they created the soundtrack and the score before the movie was finished casting. Before the movie had completely been written, they were writing the score because Jonathan Davies uh, decided that he wanted to start writing film scores, and so he got in touch with a, a buddy of his who connected him with the uh, a, a film score writer, and he was like, "Yeah, come on in, start doing this together. I'm starting to work on on this movie." Now here's where stuff got wild is that he was allowed to do the vocals for Lestat, but his record label would not let him have those vocals on the actual soundtrack. So the soundtrack doesn't have Jonathan Davies's from Korn's vocals, and it's like a bunch of other artists. It's not him. Oh, I don't think well, I knew that's that. That's really weird. It is, yeah. It's a very weird. Right stuff is always weird when you have that. Even though he wrote the music specifically for, because this is Warner Brothers, right? I think it's Warner. I believe yeah. so. I'll, yes, I'll look it up. Yeah, so it was Warner Brothers has own music label, and he yeah. was he was Universal. So yeah, he couldn't. Uh, oh. He couldn't do it. Oh. I just wonder, like. I know that there was supposed to be a duet between Aaliyah and Jonathan Davies. She like, like, was right? a huge new metal fan as well. Like apparently, like she has a very eclectic taste. She was very into it. She she's the one who proposed it. She's like, why is Akasha not singing a song with Lestat? And he was like, I'm on board. And it uh, she, unfortunately she passed away. So for youngins yes. who do not know what happened, um, Aaliyah was shooting a music video in the Bahamas, and she tragically was in a plane crash and died. I think she was 23 years old. Like it yeah. was just it was a loss. So tragic. Like, truly. And at this point, she had been recording since she was 12 years old. She had multiple number one hit singles. um, And they were really pushing her to be a film star at this point. I rewatched Romeo Must Die before I watched this because you honestly, you just don't get an idea of what she's capable of here. You're right. Like, there's too much focus on the white dude, not enough of, like, this person who actually is interesting. And she's good in Romeo Must Die. Like, she does exactly what she's supposed to do. And I feel like, again, had this person been given more time, um, it would have been really interesting to see where she went and what she was capable of. Well, her physicality in this movie is incredible. Like, she, Mm -hmm. like, it's just like, she's not in this movie a ton, but she chews up the scenery, like, literally and figuratively. Like, the, the physicality she gives Akasha and the way she just moves her body and makes you feel like she's this like cat snake creature is so good. Like, and I would, again, like I would love to see what that meant for her. Like she could have been such a badass horror actor. I mean, cause I, I cat think she was woman. A, Can you she, imagine her as Catwoman and Selena Kyle? Like if she can move like that, she would have been really great. Oh my, God. oh my gosh. But she was a big horror person, I think too. Um, and it was just like, just seeing what she's able to do with that role that was pretty limited is just like absolutely incredible. Like she just oozes charisma and it also makes you scared and also kind of horny. And it's just like, good for you for being able to make me feel all of those feelings at once with what like probably a collective like 15, 20 minutes screen time in this movie. Yeah, she's not in the movie until like I think fifty minutes in or yes. something like that. Like, it's it's, like where's it's the insane. where's the titular queen? Like, where is she? <laughs> yeah, you lied to us. This is false advertising. I came for the queen. I didn't come for this freaking idiot. Sad, also, sad boy, I, emo boy, crying into his guitar. Who oh. looks like he hasn't slept in in like years. I hate how the rest of the vampires like look like they're like just dying like like i know technically vampires are dead but like you watch like something like twilight and yes we make fun of the fact that like he's sparkly but like he looks like otherworldly yeah and and we're attracted to that most of the vampires in this including lestat look like shit and i just i'm like except for akasha so like was the point oh akasha supposed to be like the one so she looks better than everybody no. or like here's the, here's the problem is this movie is despite the presence of sex scenes sexless which is wild to say which is because which is a bummer like a truly the, a bummer there's nothing sexy about this movie and like honestly one of the main reasons why interview the vampire did so well is because people wanted to watch tom cruise and brad pitt get it off like that's really what the appeal of yeah. that film is and uh, number one this movie is not queer at all they're like they completely the um, Marius' uh, relationship is like, well, he just wanted to hang with this dude. Not like he, he's the one who turns Lestat. And it's like, he, no, 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 he wanted to fuck him. Like, that's why Marius turns him. And they completely remove that plot line. Now, allegedly, uh, in, in interviews, the um, 
director says that he brought it up with with the studio and was like, look, these can we at least make them buy? Like, can we do something like this? And they put like a hard stop on that. According wow. to the writer, the idea of him being by never even came up. Like it was never discussed, which makes me wonder if like the conversation happened first with the director um, because he was brought on this project before there was even a script. Like they just knew that the rights were running out. They had to make a movie of these books to be able to maintain the rights. And then uh, he came in and uh, and did the meetings first, and then they started working on drafts of the script. And so I think probably the discussion first of like, well, it's not gay because we have to get in. Oh, you know who likes uh, vampires? Teen girls. We got to get the teen girls in. And teen girls don't like gay men. What are you talking about? So, they love them. Mental misunderstanding. <laughs> teen girl well, psyche. I was going to say like that, that. Those people never spoken to a teen girl. <laughs> Well, and also the casting of Stuart Tansen, who I'm sure is, well, I know he was arrested for domestic battery at one point, so I'm not going to say it's perfectly lovely, but he is a nice-looking human being. He's a... He's not, a, he's not sexy. Like, it's... He there's nothing... Kinda, he's just... He looks... He kind of just looks like a, a wet fish to me. I well, don't know. I'm not even talking about his physicality. Like, there's just oh, no... Fair. The charisma isn't there. Like, there's no... no uh, there's no potent sexuality. And you're just like... And then you put him next to Aaliyah, who is, like, sex on fire. And you're like, you know... It's you're just, trying it's just to tell me thing. that Stuart Townsend was a fucking, like, rock god. And he looked... And, like, he acted like that. Like, I just... Not... Not an... Could not have told me a more unconvincing story that that guy is a rock, as a sex and rock and roll god. Well, also that he doesn't keep his accent. Like he's got an Irish accent. Why didn't he keep the accent? That was quite the performance. You should be more careful. And well, that's not list at right. Like so, I feel like that. Would well, have they worked, changed but... everything else. He's not a blonde. I guy. know. <laughs> they just let him be but... Irish. <laughs> And apparently, though, like, she liked him. Like, she was, like, because famously she didn't like uh, Tom Cruise's Lestat. She, like, hated yeah. him and thought he was yeah. a bad choice. I disagree. I think he's, like, I think he's chewing the scenery. And, and Everyone um, is. They're having a gay old time. I, I th- get emphasis on the gay. I, I, I love <laughs> that movie. But I don't get what she saw in him. Like, she was, like, oh, he's so charming. He's got the, like the physicality of, of how I imagine Lestat. I was like, Anne, I think you've lost the plot. Like what, what were you smoking? I think she wanted to make, like, make it like, look, I'll support him. I think he's kind of a hottie and he kind of looks like a, he looks like a grown up Victorian boy who had consumption. So like, maybe she's into that. (laughs) When the cut was sent to, or was sent to her for approval, he did actually send apologies that it wasn't gayer. Like, he's like, I'm sorry, we've tried to combine everything. And uh, the director was invited to meet uh, Anne Rice at one of her, which she's since passed, but one of her famous vampire parties that she would throw in New Orleans, where she would get in a coffin in a mausoleum and sign autographs all night. And she would do this with a little cooler of tab because all she drank was tab. It's like the gothest thing ever. such a weirdo. It's wonderful. I love her. So that's, that's how he met her, was she was signing autographs, drinking tab in a, co- in a coffin. It was wonderful. That's how I'm trying to be, honestly. So, like, <laughs> have a big party, you just drink tab in a coffin all night, and everyone has to come talk to you, and you don't have to move. Like, dream status. Yeah. Absolutely. I want that, but I want my coffin to be pink. You know, like that pink blow-up uh, coffin? Have you seen that on the internet? I that's have. Like, you like, I have. Well, that's what I That's what I want to be in. Because, like, I, I, I'm, I think I'm a soft goth. I'm not sure. Um, and maybe that's why this movie didn't hit with me. It was, like, too blue. Just too... Mm. Too, like, too, like, full-on, like, dark colors kind of situation. You want, like, a pastel goth kind of vibe. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we yeah, should make I'm a pastel goth song. version of this movie that's actually good and queer. And is yeah. I love it. I would love it. Let's put Margot Robbie in it. Maybe it's just like the Barbie movie is Queen of the Dam. We play Akasha now though. I feel like hmm. Megan the Stallion would be a really good Akasha. Oh yeah. That's a I'm great think- call. I'm thinking Janelle Monet. Ooh, that's wait. That's no, yeah. you're right. I think Janelle Monet, because yeah, all right. Like titties out for the next 15 years <laughs> so and, like, and, and they're non-binary and like they're yeah. they're just oh my god anyway i'm fan casting an actually good adaptation of this but. well and here's I the thing is there is actually a tv series of interview with the vampire now which i mm-hmm. have not seen so i i don't know much about it um but it it seems like it's gayer so that's good um oh yeah but oh, the biggest gayer. issue with this i mean aside from the fact that it's not sexy and it is like full goofy full camp like i love the scene where he's waiting for the rock 
concert to happen. He's like laying on like giant satellite dishes. It's just glorious. Um, We're also, we should point out, two years away from Dracula 2000, which pioneered this aesthetic, which if people Mm -hmm. have not heard our episode on Dracula 2000, it is wild. I highly recommend that one. We we pair it with Godzilla 2000. It's fun. This had kind of already been done in that film. Like literally they're at the Virgin Megastore and there's new metal happening everywhere there. So this is the same thing. Um, and this is very much like a, a film that was made by committee. It's they're checking in, being like, are we checking all the sponsorship boxes? Are we hitting what the teens like these days? But at the end of the day, it's supposed to be based on books, but the books are unfilmable at this point, which is why it took them a decade to make it because they were like, we got man, a mega hit on our hands, interviewed the vampire, what's next? Well, this book is uh, 500 pages of vampire lore and there's no action. It just talks about who sired who. It's basically the Bible. And then this book here is, you know, it, so it just doesn't make any sense. So it, it, fundamentally, you can't really make a, like a two-hour movie out of, the one book, Vampire Lestat, to begin with, and they tried to shove in the third book, which is Queen of the Damned, and none of it's going to make any sense. Yeah. No. That, to me, is wild to me that they tried to cram those two together. Like, that, to me, is just crazy pants. Yeah. I feel like they felt like they had one shot at, like, hitting it again, and so they were just like, let's go for it. And when Aaliyah was attached, they're like, "Let's, let's call it Queen of the Damned. But it kind of reminds me of, like, twilight later on where they're like what can we what can we build on like let's let's do a stunt casting like because you have to think like someone like robert pattinson like he was stunt casting because he was in harry potter like like that, oh, that's right i always know? forget that he was in harry potter right i don't know if you guys know this Stuart townsend i mean this is pretty common stuff but like he only is in this movie because he got let go from being aragorn in lord of the rings Oh, I don't think I knew that. Oh, thank God. Yeah, two two oh, days before they they let him go, and they <laughs> two days before they started shooting, they let him go, and so he was available for this, so they brought him in. So one of the oh, first people who was actually cast Ooh. for this was Aaliyah, and they put her through her paces on this. So the director literally made her learn an Egyptian accent and the Oscar Wilde Salome monologue, and then do both at the same time and like writhe around on the floor, and uh, that's when he cast her. But her next project after this was supposed to be a Sparkle remake starring her and Whitney Houston. Oh, God, I would have loved to see that because I just watched that after Irene Cara died. It's great, Um, eh? I I think Aaliyah could have done so, so much. Aaliyah really could have. I just, I was actually talking about this with my husband the other day about Amy Winehouse. I know it's very different, but just like, it's so sad when people like like this die so young and you're just like, there were so many cool things you could have done. And I know that's not like constructive, but it's just like, it is sad to think about that because she really was a fucking star. Yeah. I mean, this also, like we need to look at the time and space is this is the same year as Blade 2. The following year is Underworld. Um, and so we we have a very much a Matrix influence going on here from 1999, right? Like everything here is going to be Matrix oriented. The coloration is Matrix oriented. Mm-hmm. The feel is all of it's very Matrix. Until you get to Twilight in 2008, almost all vampire movies that aren't indie movies are like this. Yeah, that's yeah, true. that's so yeah, true. That is really true. Underworld really feels like it could be double billed with this, like for. For sure. Even like a Resident Evil, which I know is a little bit different. It's 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 zombies, but like this aesthetic is so what we grew up with. It is so yes. and I think it led to how the first Twilight looks. It's interesting when you look at like I, I'm sorry to bring it back to Twilight. I love again. it though. I love it so <laughs> you much. Have to, it's the same genre. It's stuff that's intended for teens. It's pap. It's that this like ro- sexless romance. It's the same thing. And, like, the soundtrack stuff, too, I think about with Twilight, where I feel like something like this set the groundwork for Twilight, where Twilight was, like, we're going to, like, cash in on the popular artists or the popular, like, subgenres of music for the day. We're going to put it into a soundtrack. And people would listen to the Twilight soundtracks, but they wouldn't see the movie. Well, like, that was the whole thing. I lo- I still listen to the songs in that soundtrack. I won't even lie to you. Decode by Paramore. Are you kidding me? Like... Banger after banger on that soundtrack. I listen to it all the time. I was a big Twihard, but still, like, it was a really good soundtrack. Yeah. I think I had never thought about this connection, Emily. Like, you are blowing my mind right now. I love it I'm so sorry. much. No, I love um, it. It's incredible. <laughs> but, like, think about that first Twilight movie. It's so blue. It's, like, so in this color palette. And then the rest of them are not. 
And I I feel like that's a sign of how we were sort of switching gears and how things were changing in terms of the movie industry. And we're moving out of this, like, the blue, the blue period of vampires. But it's even funny, the music video thing, because, like, Emily, you, I, and Josh Corngut discussed House on Haunted Hill, uh, yeah. either last year or the year before. I genuinely don't remember. It was one of the two. It's all starting to blend together. <laughs> but, um, but I love that movie. But the music video aesthetics in that are more Nine Inch Nail inspired, and they're very cool, right? Like Skinny yeah. Puppy, Nine Inch Nails, like it's a different kind of like more industrial aesthetic, which I think I, I just think is more interesting visual and it's not as broody, it's just creepier, which you see start to shift again post-Matrix where new metal stuff starts to come in. It's the leather jackets and the sunglasses and all that. Like it's it's a very interesting cultural shift that happens in terms of the visuals. Yeah. If anything, you can say that Queen of the Dam feels like a time capsule of 2002 in every way the aesthetic the soundtrack the people that are in it like everything about it is 2002 um and so in that way i think i think it's cool and that's probably why people like you mary beth like like still love it and cling to it because it takes you back to to that time you know it takes you back yeah. to 2002 and, and you're like, a baby goth I think also something that make, I've written about this before, like the matrix takes a lot of like, because the Lukowskis are trans. And so there's a lot of like implied, like such inherent queerness in the matrix, especially with this use of leather. Cause I mean, there's such a, I, we can't talk about the whole history of leather. That's a lot. It's a very long conversation, <laughs> but like le- they use leather and leather has this queer connotation of like bikers and gay bars and gay men. And then having like the leather aesthetic trans like translate into these movies because of the matrix is so funny that like not realizing how like the queer optics that and like queer aesthetics that are in these movies that are being translated and how like there's a queerness that I think people miss with a lot of the matrix and still have and always will unfortunately but I love how this queer movie the matrix like shapes all of these very heteronormative movies and like loving the leather and everything but still like it's again it's like co-opted from queer culture so it's really interesting like how these movies took that and like kind of fundamentally maybe misunderstood what that was coming from but it's kind of wild to see that and like think about it especially in 2023 and like looking at the trends it's like oh fascinating Yeah, we should also say that this film is not all Michael Reimer, the director's fault. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues with it is that he later went on to be an extremely successful uh, television director known for extremely visual shows like Hannibal and American Horror Story and The Killing. And he directed the Picnic at Hanging Rock miniseries, Jessica Jones. So like he's a very high end television director now who knows his way around visuals. So I think he really did his best with a bad situation of what he was being thrown by the studio uh, on a project that I think genuinely they were just trying to be like, make something quick and keep the rights. Not as bad as Roger Corman in the Fantastic Four. I will not say that. Is it watchable just in terms of extreme goofiness? 100%. Is this like very, uh, um, yeah, time capsule Exactly. Is it good? For me, is different than good. <laughs> that is a different thing. But I think it's it's worth talking about, and especially the fact that this is the last Aaliyah performance, I think it has to stay in the conversation just because of that. Yeah, I just would like a, just a cut of just her scenes. Like, I would just watch that. That personally. is what YouTube is for, my friend. I'm sure somebody's done it, and that's what I'm interested in seeing. And I think even that sex scene, which I do find really sexy, it's it's because of her. It's not... It's not because of him. It's just her. No, it's her. You're just looking at her. She's like so damn captivating, which is what a vampire should be, right? Especially the queen of the damned. She's got to be like the sexiest mofo out there. And that's that's what Aaliyah was, you know? Um, R.I.P. R.I.P. Also, the fact we can't end this episode without saying the fact that her brother ended up looping his voice uh, for some of the dialogue that they had to do uh, after Aaliyah passed. My children, wants my blood to see you all gathered, plotting against me. That's just so interesting to me. And it sounds good, well, because she can't talk with the teeth, right? So they had to ATR everything, but she was gone. So that's why it's so funky sounding, is they're doing all sorts of digital distortions. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Uh, we are yeah. ending this episode with Mary Beth's blown mind. <laughs> I think this is, <laughs> this is where we go. All right. Hi. So, Emily Gagne, thank you once again for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you. 
Thank you, Becky. This was a blast. I love talking about vampire movies uh, with you. And I always love hanging out with Mary Beth. So it's pretty good. Now, Mary Beth McAndrews of Dread Central, uh, why don't you tell people how they can hear you? It was such a pleasure having you. And I'm sure they're going to want to read more and hear more and all the fun stuff. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me. And Emily, thank you for recommending me talk about all things Mothman. I am so glad that my brand is strong enough that I am the one and only choice talking about Mothman movies. I love that for myself, and I feel like that is a huge accomplishment. Um, If you want to uh, read some of the things I write and also read some of the dumb things I tweet, you can follow me on Twitter at MBMcAndrews. You should also follow Dread Central, where I'm the editor-in-chief to read all of the amazing things that all of our amazing writers have written at Dread Central across all platforms. And I have a podcast called Scarred for Life, where me and my co-host Terry talk to directors, filmmakers, writers, anyone in the horror sphere about the film that terrified them as a kid. And we actually had Emily on and we talked about Fear, starring a young Marky Mark. So you can find us on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. It's a really good time. We've been doing it for a while. So if you want to hear more of me being silly, but also sometimes smart, listen to that podcast. And you can join us again in two weeks, where it's not going to be spooky, it's going to be romantic, but it still could be way gayer. It's Bandit Like Beckham and my big fat Greek wedding, and we're going to be joined by Vanya Garraway. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Mary Beth McAndrews and Emily Gagne as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.